This is Toastcaster, your communication leadership and learning lab with your host, Greg Gazin. Episode 124, Consequential Communication in Turbulent Times with our guest, Diana Peterson-Moore. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest edition of Toastcaster, your communication leadership and learning lab. This is Greg Gazin. We have a special guest on the line, Diana Peterson-Moore, an employment lawyer, manager, officer, and corporate human resource executive. She left the Fortune 200 company to launch the Organizational Effectiveness Group, LLC. Through strategic planning, teamwork, training, and coaching, Peterson-Moore's company focuses on services and products that align individuals with organizational goals. She's a community volunteer, active hiker, international traveler, and of course, a proud parent, she says. Diana Peterson-Moore, talking to us from Pasadena, California. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Greg. Thank you for hosting me. You've been out and about traveling around North America, so thank you very much for taking the time on an early Sunday morning to be on the program. Happy to be here. So congratulations on your new book. It's called Consequential Communication in Turbulent Times, subtitled A Practical Guide to Leadership. Thank you. It was a a work that took me longer than I anticipated, but all based on real stories. I'm very curious. Tell us about the title. Is it about communication? Is it about leadership? And what's the turbulent part stand for? Well, actually, the turbulent stands for two different pieces. One's just what's going on in society in general and culturally. Um, We live in a time of deep divisions, particularly in my country. And secondly, in the workplace, I think there's this notion of people working longer. There's multiple generations in the workplace. Everyone's been shaped by different historical and societal norms, and so we communicate differently. Um, I'd also say that the workplace compact has been broken in the United States. I don't know about elsewhere, but it used to be if you started in a company at 18, 21, 24, some natural point of leaving school, and one kept his or her nose clean, you could put up with a fair amount of guff, as my mother would have said, and you could retire with nice employee benefits, including health care, that no longer exists. So employees are a lot more demanding. You know, it's ironic. Employers kind of broke that compact, and now they are questioning why there's no loyalty. And then really, lastly, at least in California, we are a very diverse state, and people bring their communications with them from their cultural biases. It can be very tricky. It can be very problematic. One person's arts, another person's pornography, as they say. (laughs) Now, there's so many different reasons that people write books. Why particularly this book? I have a lot of experience, uh, been there, done that, as I'm fond of saying. I start a lot of my projects by saying that I made a lot of mistakes as a first-time manager. The good news is I learned from those mistakes, and the better news is I'm willing to share them with whomever I'm working with so they won't make those mistakes. So the book is really a compilation of all those lessons learned. My goal is to share them with others, and I truly believe that if someone can learn from my mistakes, all the better. Also, the book is based on stories. It's not research-based. I know I have a difficult time sometimes reading research because it's not necessarily applicable to what goes on in the day-to-day. And 
these are all things that have happened. These are all stories that have either things that happened to me personally or actually the majority of those are stories, events, transactions that have happened with clients or people that work for me. Cool. Why do you feel that this book is is different than other books that are out there on the topic? Because there are lots, right? Yeah, because I think it's based upon the stories that I just mentioned, and it's very practical. Over the years uh, working with individuals, I've developed a lot of little phrases like the two-for-one rule or using I statements and banishing you statements, things that are kind of short and snappy that people can relate to. A lot of the books out there that I'm familiar with are very research heavy, and I think people don't always relate. People do tend to relate to stories, and I'm hoping, because a lot of the stories are fairly universal, people might see themselves and they might learn from them. Interesting. You touched upon the I statement. I was thinking that I belong, of course, I belong to Toastmasters. Quite often when you write a speech, they always say you make it about the audience, you make it about the you, but yet when you're talking about leadership and something that you refer to in your book, the converse is almost true. Maybe you can share a little bit about that. Yeah, well, I, in fact, this morning, it's Sunday morning, so the Sunday morning talk shows were on. One of my stories is about a newscaster. When people are being interviewed these days, they use the question as a starting point to say whatever they plan to say. It may have no relevance whatsoever. I've heard interviewers say things like, you didn't answer my question. And when that happens, I think the newscaster looks weak and maybe looks not very sympathetic. I heard one day someone say, I didn't hear you answer my question, which to me made the questioner a lot more sympathetic and people could say, yeah, so-and-so didn't answer the question. I also think it's an issue of responsibility. I'm responsible for my thoughts, what I think, what I feel. Uh, One of the things that drives me nuts, frankly, is when people say, you didn't understand, because the little cloud above my head's always saying, how do you know what I understood? I think it's better to reframe it and say, you know, the point I'm trying to make is, I find I'm having a difficult time making my point, or, you know, I'm a little confused, I'm not sure I was clear, could you repeat what I've asked you to do? I think that sets the dynamic into one of mutuality and removes that notion of people feeling defensive. No, I agree. I think in the workplace, it's important. Now, in the news, it's a different story because in our country here in Canada, we have a federal election coming up. They offered people an opportunity to speak to the candidates. And of course, one candidate was promising the earth, the moon and the sky. The individual asked, well, how are we going to pay for that? Mm -hmm. (laughs) The candidate didn't really answer the question. He just kept skirting around it. That happens. Yeah, absolutely. What I found novel about the book was the format. What I really like about the format is it starts off with an opening statement about what you're going to be talking about. You have how-tos, which includes step-by-step instructions in in terms of what, what you can do. Then you have consider this, which I really like because it gives you some food for thought and it's actually, it sounds like what's going through our minds at the time. Then you have a what if situation, which again is a little bit more food for thought, you know, consider these types of things. You have a case study in lieu of just some concepts and principles. Then you also have a section on what went wrong and you have tips. So was that something that you put together on purpose or was it a thought process that you used? How did you come up with that format? Well, it's the old adage, tell them what you're going to say, say it, and then tell them what you just said. It was intentional. 
it was trying to, and I'm, I'm glad you responded the way you did, it was presenting a concept which could be fairly unattainable for certain readers than the how-to. So it's kind of starting, if, you're, if it's a funnel, it's a big funnel and we're going narrower and narrower and narrower with the notion, because it's one of the things I have realized over time is that we take in information differently. So the goal was to try to hit every possible reader at his or her most comfortable space for communication. And then actually the last chapter is just a compilation of all the tips. So if somebody either A, doesn't have the time, B, peruses books, or C, wants to refresh his or her recollection, they could go to the final chapter, kind of look at the tips and say, oh, that's what I want to focus on today, and then go back to the particular chapter that the tips relate to. It's also basically 100 pages because in this day and age, people are want to read longer books including me, unless it's fiction. <laughs> I'd love to read fiction. <laughs> no, I like that because sometimes if someone wants to learn about leadership or find ways of improving their communication style in the workplace, typically it would be like, here's a concept, this is what you have to do, and then, oh, oh by the way, here's an example. But with a case study, you have a scenario. As you're going through the scenario, all of these things are, are going through your mind. And I particularly like the fact that you talked about what went wrong. Yes, chapter on make it easy for them to say yes. That happened, the exact example I gave, where a very large metropolitan agency, uh, I was hired with a team of people to train the top 500 leaders in a, you know, 25,000 person organization. And each team had a project to work on. And at the end, they they presented it to the senior officers. And the one team had this great idea about how to train and how to plan for baby boomers retiring. Everybody agreed to it, but nothing happened. And still nothing's happened from what I can tell because the individuals who made the presentation and once they got the go ahead, they kind of felt like, well, these guys are now going to execute. And to me, no, if you want to execute a plan, you really have to think through all the component parts talk to the people who you want to get involved, get their agreement to participate, and then have a plan B because life happens so that when you are ready to implement, you can be responsible from soup to nuts. You can be responsible for getting it done. Maybe that's a long-winded answer, but it's something that happened, and I found it to be very sad but also very instructive about what to do differently. Yeah, no, it makes sense. What I also found interesting is that quite often your case study or case studies, some of your chapters have multiple case studies, typically focus in one area. But as you go through and you start thinking, well, what about this? What about this? What about that? I realized that as you go through the book, you started to bring back cases, not necessarily yeah. for repetition, but all of a sudden, oh, remember this? Remember that? Remember when this person was doing that? And then you start to tie things together because the case studies that we're just reading in the previous chapters are still fresh in our minds. When another leadership concept or communication comes up, you bring that back and helps it tie together. Yeah, and that was purposeful. And that's probably what took me longer than I anticipated in writing the book. I guess I'm an observer of people. I like to see what motivates people. And I also realize that many of the concepts, while individual, they're also integrated and related. And so my goal was to try to bring something back to be able to say, 
Yes, the concept about which it was originally introduced applies, as does this one right here and now. You know, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. It's a compilation, again, of the lessons learned and ways in which people can be thoughtful and intentional about their communication. I can't recall which chapter it was, but there was one where you actually brought back, I think, three, four, five cases. (laughs) Yeah. It's really interesting because the very first case, which did happen, you know, the CEO waltzing out, giving instructions, and then kind of leaving for the day, that was recently used by CEO Magazine, actually. And I talked to the person who used it, and he used it with a bunch of CEOs because he felt that that's exactly what CEOs do. We still live in an organization where a CEO will say, jump when we say how high. And he or she kind of assumes that everybody got the story because they never check for understanding. And oftentimes they don't. And oftentimes employees don't want to appear to be dumb or stupid, so they don't ask questions. And the CEO doesn't get what he or she wants. It can lead to disaster, which happened in the case study I referenced. I'm very optimistic, and I always hope that managers would improve a lot over time. And although many have, many are still repeating the sins of the past, for lack of a better way of describing it. I don't want you to give away too much of the book, but there's a few golden nuggets I would love if you could share with uh, with our audience. Uh, one of them is we quite often refer to communication as being a two-way street, right? There's the send and receive, but yet you have it as a three-way, almost like a three-legged chair where you talk about listen, ask, and tell. What are your thoughts on that? Well, my thoughts on that is that as bosses, we do a lot more telling and very little listening and asking. And that if we were to reverse that, listen more and ask questions, several wonderful things happen. One, you find that your very good idea might be articulated by somebody else who can then feel good about himself or herself and contribute. And two, you might find out that somebody has a better idea than you do. Again, this is a lesson I learned personally and I have applied to others. The case studies are in there. One of them was me as corporate secretary at a large investor-owned utility in Southern California. And the second was audit manager for a large company. I think if you listen and ask more, you embrace the team. People feel good about themselves. And one of the things that I realized is that I didn't have all the answers. And once I empowered the team to feel comfortable coming forward, they started coming in with things I never even thought of. They started coming in with issues and solutions because they knew they would be listened to. So it's a win-win. It's a great way of thinking about it because typically in the past, or I mean, it probably still happens in some places, is that if you don't know the answer, it's looked at as a sign of weakness, but yet it's in fact not the case. Not at all. None of us has all the answers. One of the things that I've noticed over time is that most people get promoted because they're good individual contributors. And then all of a sudden they're asked to manage, motivate, and lead, but nobody gives them the tools. And for a lot of people, um, it's antithetical. So we take that, what we did as a great individual contributor, move into a leadership management position without the tools, continue to behave as we always have, often to disaster. The first time I was promoted, I actually didn't like the job. I thought, OMG, what am I doing in this job? It wasn't fun. People weren't responding to me. 
And the person who had been in the job ahead of me, who happened to have been a man, was promoted. So I assumed everything he did was A-OK. And I would kind of run up, put my toe in the water and run back. And I, I said to myself, stay in this job for a year. And if you're not happy after a year, you can do something else. And of course, that year was a struggle, but I ended up being okay with it. At the very end, uh, the person who was my supervisor said, oh, I needed somebody who was a change manager, and I thought you would do it. And I looked at him, and I said, you know, it would have been so nice if you told me that at the beginning, because then <laughs> I would have implemented what you asked me to do. This way, I was a lot more tentative. I don't know. I just feel like the tools that we don't give people, if they don't read about them, learn about them, coached into them, are probably not going to be very successful managers or leaders, ultimately. And some of it has to do with the platinum rule that you talk about rather than the old golden rule. Absolutely. I view the golden rule as I communicate with Greg the way Diana wants to be communicated with, which is a nice thing to do. But I'm going to be more effective if I communicate with Greg the way Greg wants to be communicated with. A lesson learned over time. We take in information differently. Some people take it in verbally. I do. Some people need to read it. And some people want verbal information followed up in writing. I cite a couple of examples in the book where treating somebody else or communicating with somebody else the way you want to be communicated with actually leads to disaster. I mean, we all want to be effective. And if I want to be effective with Greg, I'm going to communicate with Greg the way he takes in information. Pretty simple rule. You can't always, sometimes you can ask people actually how they take in information and they'll tell you. More often than not, you have to try various different methods and modes or just be a really good observer. I know when I'm facilitating, which I do a lot of, I will say something that's perfectly clear in my own mind, and I will watch for the reactions. And if people aren't getting it, which you can often tell by body language, I'll say the same thing the exact same way. Then I'll say it a different way. And as more and more people seem to be nodding or you can see the whites of their eyes, and there's still people who have that puzzled look, I'll say something like, you know, I'm even confusing myself. I'm not sure how clear I've been. Who would like to tell me what they think they heard me say? And that's often the trick. Even though I might think I've been clear as a bell, obviously, if people aren't understanding what I'm saying, I haven't been clear. That's also kind of the notion of the I statements. I view communication this way. It's not your job to understand what I've said. It's my job to communicate to the effect that you understand what I say, which is kind of turning it on its head. I don't say, you didn't get it. I say, I'm sorry, I didn't communicate very clearly. Even if I feel like I did, I obviously didn't if the other person didn't understand. That's a huge shift in mindset. I think that would be a challenge for some individuals because they're used to the ones being, I told you, you should know, you should understand what I just said. I mean, how much more clear mm -hmm. can I be, right? Exactly. Which is so demeaning to say you didn't understand. I mean, I've been in personal conversations with people, friends and children, who will say, you this, you this, and I'll say, don't tell me about me, tell me about you. I know about myself. I want to know what you're thinking and feeling. Now, mind you, when you do it with your children, they say, oh, mom, you're just using your tricks from the book. And I'll say, well, yeah, because I try to practice what I preach. So it's not as effective with my own children um, as it is with clients. But nonetheless, I do it. <laughs> do you use the lawyer in you with your kids? 
<laughs> I try not to because, well, one of my children is also a lawyer. One of the three is a lawyer. <laughs> she and I speak the same language, but I try not to because I think it distances people once again. And my goal is not to be distant. My goal is to move in close. I, even when I was a practicing lawyer, all these, all these words, and the reason there were all these words and the whereas and the heretofores is because people literally were paid by the word. And I find that that really obfuscated. So even when I was a lawyer, practicing lawyer, I would try to take something that was 500 words and make it into 200 words, plain language, kind of the Ernest Hemingway, very straightforward, plain language. Although there are a lot of jokes about lawyers, and I tell them and hear them too, it can be intimidating to others who are not. And my goal is not to be intimidating, but to be embracing. <laughs> my comment about the lawyer in you was just to set up to get to the next question. But I think I love the fact, I love the way you elaborated on it. It goes yeah. back to the title of chapter nine, which I really love. It's perception is reality. Assume facts, mm -hmm. not in evidence. I'll mm -hmm. quote from the book. It says, in the judicial system, the phrase, assuming facts not in evidence, relates to a witness testifying to a fact mm -hmm. that is yet to be established in the course of a trial. We mm -hmm. understand what would happen when we're watching Law & Order, what would happen on TV. What does this mean to the rest of us? I think what it means, which is we all bring our baggage with us. We bring our experiences with us. We bring our childhood with us. We bring our culture with us. And we assume that what we believe is believed and shared by others, which is really not the case in most situations. I'll give an example. I was on a bank board of directors, and at one point in time, the bank was looking for a new HR person. So I gave the CEO a couple of names, didn't think anything of it. One of the individuals was hired. And it didn't work out, which kind of reflected poorly on me. So that was one lesson I, I learned. Fast forward to we were doing a 360 performance evaluation where you interview the person himself, herself, the boss, the peers, subordinates. It's literally a circle, which is where you get the 360 degrees. So it was a PhD who had done it. <laughs> he was giving me my feedback. And he said, I think we should meet in a bar. So I, I knew what that meant. He said to me, somebody thinks you're very manipulative. And I looked at him and I said, have you ever taken a 360? And he said, well, no, of course not. And I said, well, I have. I've taken them and I've given them. And I said, what you told me, I would never tell anybody. And he was a little taken aback. And I said, because it's not useful information. And in fact, telling someone they're manipulative is hurtful. I said, so I would want to know what are the acts and facts? What caused the person to say that? And he said, oh, well, because you recommended an HR person, so of course this person thought you wanted to control HR. And I just started laughing. And I said, I have so much on my plate. That was the first thing from my mind. I said, but had you told me that, that's useful information. That tells me that the other person was projecting, tells me that that other person, had he suggested somebody, might do it for those reasons. That wasn't my motivation at all. But the useful information for me is that I can now understand how it might be perceived, so I won't do that in the future. That's an example I have in the book, but it actually happened to me. Whereas the person who gave me the results thought I was going to be devastated, I wasn't. I said, that tells me more about the person who made the comments than it does about me. So there's an example of assuming facts, not in evidence, and drawing conclusions, opinions, 
or attribution of motivation. I actually added, I used to say acts and facts, not conclusions or opinions. But after that situation with me, I added or attribution of motivation. So acts and facts, not conclusions, opinions, or attribution of motivation. So it really sounds that assuming facts, not in evidence, besides miscommunication, there can be some serious consequences. And if it wasn't you responding, obviously you have a very high emotional intelligence, this thing could really mm-hmm. have exploded and caused some huge grief within the organization. Oh, absolutely. There was, interestingly enough, there were only two women on the board. She and I were rated the lowest. Well, she was devastated, and I wasn't because I assumed that her responses were similar to mine, so I had a conversation with her, and she'd never taken a 360. That's when I realized that perception was reality, and I also realized that I was in control of that perception. I could change people's perceptions of me by changing my own workplace behavior. So I was very fortunate. It was painful early on, but I learned a lot and it's made me, I believe, a better person, a better leader, and certainly a better consultant. Well, it sounds interesting because you talk about, when you talked about changing the way you presented yourself, Mm -hmm. I think in many respects, that does a lot. For example, if you have someone who has a different personality than you, in terms of being able to communicate with them, you can't necessarily change who you are but you can change your behavior, maybe in terms of being able to better connect with that individual. When I was in the corporate world, and I remember my last corporate assignment was head of human resources for a very large American media company with 58,000 employees and a gazillion companies. Of course, not a gazillion, but a lot. (laughs) And my immediate supervisor, if I had to ask him a W question, like, what do you think? There would be like, silence, radio silence. And I was using a consultant, an organizational consultant. And he said to me, why don't you try using a how statement? And I remember thinking at the time, well, that's a bunch of bunks, blah, blah, blah. And then I thought to myself, okay, my goal is to get a response from this individual. And it's not an ethical dilemma for me to change how I use language. So I made it into a game. And the next time I needed information from him, I went in and instead of saying, what do you think? I said, how about if we tried X, Y, and Z? All of a sudden, I got all this information from him and I learned a very valuable lesson, which was even though I might have thought that it was kind of silly, I was able to change my language sufficiently to get what I wanted, which was information from him. Because that was the platinum rule. That's how he took in information. Somehow by using a W question like what, when, or why, he felt, I guess, pushed against the wall or something. I'm, I'm now assuming what he felt. All I know is that I didn't get the response I wanted. And by relanguaging, which is a non-word word, I was able to get the response. And as I said, I've learned from my mistakes. Well, Diana, thank you so much for, for taking the time today. Offer, obviously, you've offered us some of the golden nuggets and referred to some of the case studies that are in the book. You also referred to a number of things that are not in the book, so there was a lot of learning done on today's session. If someone is interested in getting a hold of you or finding the book, how can they do that? Well, thank you for asking. It's on Amazon under Consequential Communication in Turbulent Times. There's an independent bookseller in Pasadena called Romans, V-R-O-M-A-N-S, and it can be purchased in the store if you're in Southern California or online. My website is Diana, my email, I should say, excuse me, Diana, D-I-A-N-A, at 
dianapetersonmore.com, and that's D-I-A-N-A-P-E-T-E-R-S-O-N-M-O-R-E, one O in the more. I would love to hear from people. I'd love to get some feedback. I do weekly blogs. You can sign up to get those if it's a topic of interest, and most of them are really expanding upon what's in the book. And I'm also happy to answer people's questions. Okay, we'll make sure that we put your email address and a link to your website in the show notes. Great. Diana Peterson-Moore, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Greg. I had a great time. Feel free to call on me another time. I love to do podcasts. They're fun. Once again, this is Greg Gazin. We appreciate you tuning in. Now, I'm not sure how you joined us, whether you joined us through directly through Toastcaster.com or iTunes, but either way, you can pick up the podcasts there. If you really enjoyed the podcast, we'd really appreciate if you took a moment to leave us some feedback on iTunes because it really helps with our ratings. Plus, also feel free to drop us a line. Tell us what types of things you're interested in, what your Toastmaster specialty is, or what kinds of things you like to speak about. And perhaps maybe we'll even have you on the show. This is Greg Gazin. Till the next time. This episode was sponsored by Corey Outsmarts the Butterflies, a new book by Greg Gazin, geared to ages 8 to 80. Whether you want to improve your speaking skills or build your confidence, this short read is suitable for all ages. It's available at outsmartingthebutterflies.com. <laughs>